Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Grand Rounds. Uh, today, you actually get to listen to me for a little bit longer. And uh, Dr. Kelly Holly, that I'll introduce in just a little bit. And this uh, presentation will be on congenital syphilis as the Markowitz Lecture, uh, specific uh, special Grand Rounds uh, honoring our former uh, pediatric chair. But before we do that, uh, I, you know, there's a number of announcements that I'd like to make. This is the last Grand Rounds for this uh, year, uh, which has been an amazing complicated but uh, certainly rewarding in many ways a year, certainly for this area uh, of Connecticut Children's and the Department of Pediatrics. I could not be more proud of the work that has been done by an amazing group of people, Anna Marie Bulio, Liz, uh, Nicole, Steve, Ken Spiegelman, Esperanza, and everyone in academic affairs that actually has allowed this series to happen. Uh, all of you, your comments, you know, for participating throughout the pandemic, thank you very much. Uh, we really appreciate it. And let us know how we did and how we can do better starting in September. I think we have uh, some great things uh, in store for next year. We're going to continue to do it from the studio. We'll have some Grand Rounds live back in the auditorium, but I think at least for this coming year, we will continue with this format of presentation that allows a lot of people to log in as they're located in various facilities throughout the state, and including uh, Massachusetts and New York. Uh, we have some uh, some uh, rewards. I'm going to ask Liz to come, uh, to come up here for just a second. Um, and uh, she's, she's got her mask, and you can get a little closer to see you there. There you go. Uh, and she's the brains behind all of these things, so you can you know, send her a meal and, and thank her. But we have some rewards. Uh, the first one is, uh, I think I'm going to go, oh, you already moved it. There we go. The first one is the Traveling Grand Rounds Speaker Participation for, for all three area hospitals. And she's going to draw the name, and the winner is... Jennifer Hale. Jen Hale, uh, you get, uh, courtesy of Connecticut Children's, a beautiful uh, water bottle. Uh, you can add whatever you want into it. Uh, absolutely pretty, and, uh, and it's uh, aligned with the current month. It's a uh, pride month, so congratulations to Jen Hale for uh, winning this, and we'll put that away there. The next one is the most CME participation for Grand Rounds and Surgical Lectures, and the winner is... Dr. Seth Lapak, uh, congratulations. You also get one of these beautiful bottles. And so we'll make sure that we deliver that to you somewhere in cardiology after you finish your 47th echo this morning. So thank you, Seth, for participating. The next one is the most MOC credit claim uh, for Grand Rounds. And the winner is, actually, we actually have a winner already because it's an actual number. That's Michelle McKee, Dr. McKee from the Emergency Medicine Group. And thank you very much for participating and congratulations. And hopefully you're logged into this one. Otherwise, we take the prize back. <laughs> and, and then the last one is the uh, regularly scheduled series that the administrative support winner is. Uh, Jacqueline Sklenka. So Jacqueline, uh, congratulations to you. You get also a nice bottle, uh, and you can again add uh, whatever Kool-Aid you want to add to it. So thank there's you. One more. And there's one more. Okay. <laughs> oh yes, absolutely. So uh, we grade all the speakers, and uh, we we like to congratulate the speaker with the highest rating. And that was Dr. Michelle Cloutier from last week. Her, it was almost a perfect score. It was 4.93 rating. That's really, really hard to achieve. So, uh, Michelle, thank you. It was an amazing grand round on, on asthma uh, guidelines. And so congratulations to her. We'll deliver also a, a bottle to her home. So congratulations to all of you. So now let's begin with the grand rounds. So, you know, first I want to acknowledge the... Uh, the, the lecture that this speak the, the individual who's uh, uh, we're recognizing today, which is Dr. Milton Markowitz. Dr. Markowitz was chair of pediatrics between 1969 and 1983. You can see there his uh, you know wonderful wonderful picture. He was an amazing individual. Uh, worked in rheumatic fever for for decades, and really is one of the fathers of rheumatic fever prevention. Uh, you can see the his career was stellar, and he was recruited into the Department of Pediatrics to be the first chair pediatrics and subsequently was associate dean for medical student affairs and professor emeritus uh, and he passed in 2005 and every year we recognize his contributions to the school of medicine department of pediatrics uh, i had the pleasure of, of uh, knowing him back when i was a pediatric resident uh, in uh, 1988 through 92 and then when i came back as a faculty member with paul dworkin as the chair we would have uh, a dinner uh, with uh, dr markowitz and his wife uh, and his children uh, the night before the Grand Rounds uh, series. So it's, uh, it's really an honor for, 
for me to give this presentation and, and to remember Dr. Markowitz, who was a stellar member of, of our Department of Pediatrics. So the topic today is congenital syphilis. I call it enduring pandemic, and uh, there'll be two speakers. I'll be the first one, and then Dr. Kelly Hawley uh, will be the second one. And Kelly is an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics. Uh, Kelly uh, is a, an amazing uh, scientist uh, who is in the division of uh, pediatric infectious diseases and immunology. Uh, I was very lucky to get to know her back in the uh, around 2000. 11, uh, when she was working uh, in Dr. Juan Anguita's lab up at UMass getting her PhD. Uh, and uh, we were able to recruit her here uh, to this parochial research labs uh, at the university where she did her postdoctoral fellowship. She was a Borrelia uh, a scientist and we switched her into a, a T. pallidum. I think she, she thought it was easy. Uh, she'll tell you a little bit about what she has done at the end of the presentation with uh, the work in vaccine development. And she's now in our faculty. So I'm really delighted to be sharing this podium with, with Kelly. We have nothing to disclose that we know of. The objectives for the presentation will be to review the epidemiology of congenital syphilis, to describe the variable clinical presentations of congenital syphilis, the appropriate treatment guidelines uh, for congenital syphilis, and then uh, Kelly will uh, give an update on recent efforts towards syphilis vaccine development. Let's begin with the epidemiology. Uh, syphilis is really a, a, a tremendous uh, problem throughout the world. Uh, you know, we talk about COVID in the past uh, 14, 16 months, but syphilis has been around for 500 years or longer and it continues to be a major problem. You can see here from a, a, an article published by Rosanna Peeling uh, in 2017, where you look at the, the most recent estimate is that there are 18 million individuals globally with syphilis between the age of 15 and 49, with an estimated 6 million new cases every year. And you can see it's distributed throughout the world in the Americas, about a million Eastern Mediterranean region, in Africa, 1.8 million. Uh, and throughout the world, it really doesn't spare any population. But specifically, as it relates to this topic, uh, this bacterium affects moms and babies in a very significant way. Uh, you can see here from a, another article from Lori Newman, published in 2013 in PLOS, uh, the gestational syphilis affects 1.3 million women every year, 1.3 million women every year. And congenital syphilis could be as high as 700 cases, 700,000 cases per year. Uh, and the problem is that about half a million of those uh, result in either an uh, abortion, a stillbirth, or a perinatal death. And, and about a quarter of those end up with manifestations associated with congenital syphilis. Now, 90% of cases occur in the developing world, but unfortunately, it also occurs in the developing world. And you can see, and you'll see in a minute, what, it has, what has happened in the U.S. over the last few years. Now, of course, in the developing world, this is a major problem. This is a study uh, in, in my birth country of Colombia that we conducted back in 2011 with Dr. Adriana Cruz. And uh, this is from a city called Buenaventura uh, in, in the southwestern uh, Pacific area of Colombia. Uh, the population of the city is about uh, 370,000. Uh, unfortunately, because of, of guerrilla warfare, narcotics, a, a number of things that affect Colombia uh, has in the past, and unfortunately, once again, uh, there were uh, there was large numbers of refugees, uh, high maternal mortality, and high incidence of low birth weight newborns. It's an area that's highly endemic for malaria, dengue, leishmaniasis, and multi-drug resistant tuberculosis. And what we uncovered in 2011 in one hospital uh, that we, we were 196 congenital syphilis cases and 12 prenatal deaths. Uh, and again, for a small city, this is just remarkable, the number of people that were affected by this bacterium. And uh, my, my friend and colleague and mentor, Dr. Leon Kamaitis, actually shared uh, some uh, amazing photographs. And, and of course, with a sad outcome, this is from 1969 in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, he had the slides, he gave them to me, and I made them into, into, into this presentation. Uh, and, and this is a baby that died of congenital syphilis, and you can see some of the lesions in the mouth. Uh, you can see how swollen the baby is, the lesions in the legs. And, and unfortunately, the, you know, the liver, you know, quite inflamed. Uh, and this is what can happen. And this still happens today. This is 1969, but it's ongoing to this date, uh, and we have not been able to control it. So that's why we need other efforts to, uh, to improve the outcome of congenital syphilis. 
Now, if you thought this was uh, not a problem in the U.S., well, look, look again. This is from CDC. These are reported cases by year of birth and rates reported cases of primary and secondary syphilis among women. And in the graph, what you can see here is, is the, uh, in the every year from 2010 to 2019, and you can see the, the rapid increase in, in, in the number of cases. And in 2019, we, we had a 1,870 cases of congenital syphilis, which is really uh, unprecedented. And it's something that we should not have in the U.S. with a rate of 48.5 cases per 100,000. That's just a dramatic increase, which is linked to women having primary and secondary syphilis. And you can see on the right, the rate of primary and secondary syphilis in women has increased uh, dramatically over the last few years. Now, if you look at the rates of reported cases by year, birth, and state in the U.S., uh, clearly there's a, there's a tendency to see a greater number in the South. Uh, that's, that's not surprising, and this is due to social determinants of health for sure. Uh, and, and, but you can see Texas has a, just a, a dramatic number, 138.2 cases per 100,000. Uh, Connecticut, Connecticut is not spared in this, and we've had cases in the last uh, two years uh, and the, the current rate in Connecticut is 8.5 per 100,000. It really should be zero. Now, this is, uh, again, a very striking slide, which, again, highlights the social determinants of health and how our population is affected differently. And these are rates of reported cases by year of birth, race, and Hispanic uh, ethnicity of mother in the United States from 2010 to 2019. And you can see in 2019 the dramatic increase in rates. And if you look at... Uh, uh, American Indians and Alaska Natives, the rate is about 160, uh, which is, I've never seen that in, in, in the U.S. in a long, long time. Uh, also rates in Blacks and Hispanics are very high, uh, but even in, in Whites, their rates have increased over the last few years. Now, these are uh, reported cases by vital status and clinical signs and, and symptoms, and uh, you can see with the increase uh, that Obviously, many of the babies will be alive with have some signs and symptoms. Some do not have any documented signs and symptoms, and that has obviously an important indications for therapy, which I'll go into in just a minute. But the number that's really striking to me is the 128 deaths due to congenital syphilis, a completely treatable disease. Penicillin is still the drug of choice. And here in America, in the United States of America in 2019, 128 infants died because of congenital syphilis. What do we know about the pathogenesis? Actually, not much, unfortunately. We have to do more work on this. Now, we know there's vertical transmission. It happens in utero, uh, and the transplacental route is perhaps the, the, the most common one. Uh, the intrapartum, it can certainly happen if, there's a, if the baby has contact with a genital lesion, and it increases as the stage of pregnancy advances, but can occur at any time in gestation. Um, it is related to stage of maternal syphilis and is much greater than during secondary syphilis. And I'll show you that in just a minute. This is work from uh, uh, my colleague, Pablo Sanchez, uh, who worked, was at uh, Dallas for many, many years, working, in fact, worked with Justin Radel there for years and uh, when, when Justin was in Dallas. And Pablo now is at Nationwide, but he's been a, really a, a pioneer in, the, in working in congenital syphilis. And this is unpublished information, uh, but he shared this with me. And again, what it shows is the outcome according to maternal venereal syphilis clinical stage of diagnosis. You can see here uh, that on, on the top here, you have primary, secondary, early latent and late latent syphilis. And here are the number of mothers that have been studied. So primary was 26, secondary 53, early latent 145, and late latent 27. And then the results of the outcome according to the stage of syphilis, and you can see in the second column of the 53 moms, 26% uh, they resulted in a perinatal death if they had secondary syphilis, and 34%, 18 infants, developed uh, congenital syphilis. That means that 60% of those infants actually develop disease. And, and I want to highlight this because, it, you know, this is a bacterium that does not uh, really care, uh, it, it, you know, about the placenta. And it goes right through it. And it's, you know, very different. If you look at HIV results, perinatal HIV, uh, only, uh, uh, I say only, but without treatment, 20% get infected with, you know, CMV is much lower, with herpes is even lower. With trepidema pallidum, if the mother is infected, the rate of transmission is incredibly high. And it just shows you that, you know, how uh, effectively this bacterium is able to invade tissues. So why does the maternal fetal interface fail in preventing transmission? That we, we don't know. I mean, this is a formidable barrier that actually protects the infant in many ways, but T. pallidum does not care. It goes right through it. 
Now, a lot of this has to do with the unique molecular architecture, which is a key determinant. And here's uh, uh, Justin Radel, which I'm showing in, a, in an interview we had with Fox many, about three or four years ago. And, uh, and Justin has been a pioneer in developing or understanding the molecular structure of the spirochete, which is really tied directly to the spirochete's immunoevasiveness. Now, the spirochete, and Kelly will talk a little bit more about this, lacks LPS, which is the, that's lipopolysaccharide, which is the endotoxin found in gram-negative bacteria that can trigger inflammatory responses. It causes sepsis and shock, but at the same time, it's associated with, with recognition of the bacteria. And this one doesn't have this, which is a problem for recognition. It is rich in lipoproteins, but they're not accessible to the host innate immune receptors. They're really under the outer membrane. And you can see a photograph here from PNAS publication in 1989, where the lipoproteins are primarily in the cytoplasmic membrane and not the outer membrane. You can see the little, little dots on the outer membrane and a much, uh, much more prominent cobblestoning pattern in the cytoplasmic membrane uh, just below here, uh, and which shows that they're really occluded from immune recognition. So it has an almost denuded outer membrane. Uh, these are rare outer membrane proteins, and Kelly will show you the great advance that the lab has made in recognizing these outer membrane proteins, which are vaccinogens. So it behaves as a stealth pathogen. It's highly invasive. It avoids innate immune recognition. It escapes opsonization by syphilitic antibodies, and, and it has few energetic targets and high energetic variability. It has a great ability to invade tissues. And here are some, uh, this is, uh, these are photomicrographs from PNAS in 1988, which shows uh, in the, on the left there, T pallidum between and below endothelial cells, and on the right, T pallidum invading intracellular junctions. So uh, by the way, this is the only subspecies of pallidum, that T pallidum that, it, that is able to, uh, to go across the placenta. Uh, and again, here, we, you know, you can visualize T. pallidum in both the placenta and the core blood. So the, the predominant thinking is that it goes right through the placenta. A lot of work needs to be done in this area to try to understand why it avoids immune recognition. But on a more practical nature, how do you evaluate and treat infants with confirmed probable or suspected congenital syphilis? And again, just to uh, remind people, this audience is quite familiar with this, that there are two types of clinical manifestations. You have early congenital syphilis manifestations. This is due to hematogenous spread of the organism that result in the inflammatory response in the various organs and tissues. You saw that picture of the infant that Dr. Kamaitis uh, shared with me from 1969, and that infant was severely swollen. The liver was boggy. Uh, every end organ was targeted. And so this spirochete really goes everywhere in the infant. He has no way to defend himself or herself. And there's extramedullary hematopoiesis uh, and immune-mediated disease, which, and I'll show you what that translates into. And late congenital syphilis, uh, and this is one of the problems because the infant may be asymptomatic at the time of delivery. So you're not, you may not see anything. And if you don't treat the infant, you're, you will end up with late congenital syphilis, which is scarring uh, from, or stigmata from early disease, reaction to persistent inflammation and non-infectious. I won't have time to go into the late congenital syphilis manifestations. I'll focus on the early. So the CDC has a case definition for congenital syphilis. Uh, there are three categories. Uh, there's a confirmed case. You need to show T. pallidum by dark field microscopy or fluorescent antibody or other specific stains and specimens from lesions, placenta, umbilical cord, or autopsy material. Uh, certainly uh, uh, molecular studies also uh, qualify for a confirmed case. And then a probable case is an infant whose mother had an untreated or inadequately treated syphilis at the time of delivery. And that means that the treatment had to be more than 30 days prior to delivery. And I'll show you why that is the case. Uh, reactive treponemal test and abnormal physical exam, long bone x-rays, reactive CSF VDRL, increased CSF cell counts or protein or reactive IgM test. And of course, a syphilitic stillbirth would classify as congenital syphilis if there's a fetal death of, uh, after 20 week gestation or a birth weight of greater than 500 grams and a mother with untreated or inadequately treated syphilis. But it is very difficult to confirm a diagnosis of congenital syphilis. Um, uh, myself and my colleagues in infectious disease get a lot of calls about this. It's not so easy. Uh, it should be easier, but it's not. And why? Because it, there's difficulty in detecting or culturing T. pallidum. Uh, until recently, we couldn't culture T. pallidum. Now, uh, Steve Norris at, at, uh, in Dallas, I'm sorry, in Houston, was able to culture it, but it almost requires an intensive care unit to culture T. pallidum. Not, it's not something as simple as culturing E. coli. Um, and, and so that's one of the problems and why we can't detect it easily. And uh, the next thing is that there's difficulty with the interpretation of the serologic test, primarily because IgG, uh, the maternal IgG is, is transferred across the placenta and therefore the, the baby's serology, if you use IgG, is not very useful. 
Uh, and then the problem is that we, ha we have a lack of sensitive and specific commercially available IgM serologic tests. They are getting better, and I think we have some hope in the horizon, but still a problem uh, in terms of diagnosis. And then the last thing is that we have difficulty in the identification of the infants that have neurologic disease. And I'll show you that in, in one of the a very important article by Ian Mikolo. Of course, you could use Darkfield. Uh, unfortunately, although it's, a, it's an incredibly useful test, uh, it's, it's gone out of style. And most labs don't have Darkfield capabilities. Um, it, it is a wonderful technique. We have it in our lab, but it's a research lab. Uh, the IgM immunoblot uh, can be useful. Uh, again, it has to be done correctly, and, and many labs don't have the ability to do this in a way that's specific and sensitive. Uh, PCR certainly could be used, and the rabbit infectivity test, which is something that is only really done in, in, uh, in research laboratories, uh, very difficult to use in, in, in a clinical setting. So the CDC has come, up, come up with the de definition that this is pro a proven or highly probable congenital syphilis. Uh, of course, if you have an infant with a physical exam that is abnormal, that is consistent with congenital syphilis, then you can use that, and I'll show you what it looks like. If you have a positive dark field or a fluorescent antibody test with body fluids, that certainly would qualify. If you have a positive PCR for T-pollen bodily fluids or lesions, that would qualify, and a positive rabbit infectivity test. So this is a case from, uh, uh, from Columbia uh, that was shared with me by, uh, by Dr. Cruz. And this is a, an infant, 34 weeks gestation. The weight was 2.2 kilograms, uh, had three prenatal visits. The RPR was ordered, but unfortunately the mother did not comply, it was not done. Uh, at the time of delivery, the maternal RPR is one to 32, which is high. And you can see the lesions here. There's a one to two centimeter bullous lesion. And, uh, and, the, and there is a right periorbital ulceration. You can see here, uh, this large ulcer right above, poor little guy. And, uh, and there are similar lesions in the trunk and, and abdomen and the desquamation of both feet and both hands. The infant serology was 1 to 128. The, CS, uh, the, the, the CSF was, was normal with a negative VDRL, which is really interesting, uh, but the long bone films were abnormal. Obviously, this infant had very typical uh, congenital syphilis, and you can see why it failed, because the mother was not treated. This mom could have been treated early on, and this baby would have been healthy at the time of delivery. These are the typical clinical manifestations, hepatosplenomegaly, rash, condyloma, snuffles, jaundice, pseudoparalysis, and hydrops, which uh, again, just shows the disseminated uh, nature of this disease, which would be quite devastating for an infant. And, and th these, this is the classic picture that everyone sees of the infant with, uh, with you know, this severe uh, rhinorrhea. Uh, and, and if you do a dark field that, that, that's latent, uh, full of spirochetes, uh, and it just shows you that the spirochetes have gone ev everywhere with a lot of pain. You know, very difficult to see an infant like this. Broken vesicles and desquamation on the hands. And here's a, a dark field which is positive from one of those lesions. You can also see papular squamous plaques, and you can see them here in the, in the lower extremities in the trunk. And again, these are, uh, some of these are photographs from Dr. Kamaitis that he shared. And uh, again, this is the, the infant that I showed you earlier that, that passed and died with the lesions around the genital area. Uh, and you can see some of these, uh, you know, just really uh, evidence of, of dissemination of the spirochete throughout uh, every uh, end organ. Again, some more pictures showing that what congenital syphilis can look like. So if you have a proven or highly probable congenital syphilis case, what is the evaluation where? Uh, well, you need to do a lumbar puncture, CBC, the platelet count. Uh, the long bone films are useful. Uh, now the Centers for Disease Control says it's clinically indicated. The American Academy of Pediatrics will tell you that unless the diagnosis has been otherwise established. So if you're gonna treat, you don't, you don't necessarily need the long bone films. I tend to get them just to understand if there's any potential complication with that baby uh, at a later date. Other tests which are routinely uh, performed, a good eye exam looking for, for retinitis, uh, liver function test, uh, the, the, the head ultrasound, obviously hearing test, the chest x-ray is clinically indicated. Now here's the problem, uh, it, and this is a great study by Ian Michelow, who is, uh, this was, he was a fellow in, in Dallas at the time with George McCracken, got as a fellow, got his name as a first author in the New England Journal of Medicine article. Ian is now at Brown University and, uh, and you know, just a great research. He's switched to malaria now, but, uh, but this paper was, uh, was seminal. And uh, so, so as you, if you're a fellow or a resident, you're listening to this, pay attention because you can actually get your name on a, on a paper that will be famous for the rest of your life. Uh, so publish, that's what I tell my, my residents. Uh, now, 41% of those with abnormal clinical laboratory radiographic evaluation had confirmed neurologic disease, uh, confirmed CNS dissemination. 
21%. So that's not surprising. But 60% of those with abnormal uh, physical exam findings had uh, neurologic disease. Now, here's the problem. Three infants who had normal CSF indices had a positive rabbit infectivity test. Now, two of those had abnormal lab evaluations and one had a positive IgM. The, so the, the bottom line from this study, and I don't have time to show you all of it, it's a pretty, it's a wonderful study, is that you cannot make a, a, a a concluding remark that the CNS is not affected simply by doing spinal tap. Now, lung bone films that you can uh, you can show periostitis, osteochondritis, uh, frequently abnormal. In one series from Houston and Dallas, 65% were abnormal. Uh, now, to clarify, the, the abnormal findings do not change with therapy. Maybe the follow-up. Uh, you still need to treat the same way even if they have periostitis. Uh, this is another infant that we saw here in Connecticut a few years ago in a two-month-old female. The radiographs show uh, this marked uh, periosteal reaction. See if I can get this to work. You can see this double signal here, this periostitis. Uh, in this case, you also see the arrow points to destruction uh, of the proximal uh, medial tibial metaphyses. This is called the Wimberger corner sign. So how do you treat the, these infants? Uh, well, pretty straightforward, actually. Uh, you know, again, uh, it's penicillin. Uh, we, we have not seen any evidence of resistance to penicillin, despite uh, being used now extensively since the 1940s. That's good news for us. Uh, hopefully that doesn't change. Uh, and again, for a confirm or probable case, uh, by CDC guidelines, you need to use penicillin G, 50,000 units per kilo IV uh, every 8 to 12 hours, depending on the gestational age, for 10 days. Uh, you could use procaine penicillin. That's very traumatic for an infant. Again, this you know an injection every day for ten days to a, a little two point two kilogram baby is something something that we don't like to do. Uh, so we prefer the intravenous therapy. Now the guideline does say that if you if you miss one day, you got to restart the course. And I'm very firm on this because again, not treating this correctly could. Uh, could result in late congenital syphilis, which would be a problem. I mean, the infant could have neurologic manifestations, it could have hearing loss, uh, all kinds of problems later on in life, which, which you want to really capture at this stage. Uh, there, there is no alternative therapy, in this case, none. Now, ampicillin, there's really no data, uh, so penicillin should be used, and if not, close serologic follow-up is required. Uh, Ceftriaxone, there's some limited data uh, for, for infants. Uh, now, we've had shortages of penicillin, believe it or not, although this is a very you know, cheap medication. Perhaps because of that, the, the, the pharmaceutical companies are not making it here in the U.S., and so that's always a problem when we have shortages. Now, the scenario that is most likely going to be uh, seen by all of you in practice is the asymptomatic infant born to a mom with untreated or inappropriately treated venereal syphilis. So the exam is normal. And uh, so what is the likelihood that that infant has congenital syphilis? So again, from Pablo, you know, some two slides, which I think are, you know, formidable in terms of uh, trying to understand why we do this. So why evaluate and treat asymptomatic infants born to mothers with untreated syphilis? And you can see here, so the mom, the baby looks great, but the mom was not treated. Uh, and you can see here, if, uh, you know, for 86 cases, 16% uh, had a positive IgM. 7% of those had a positive rabbit infectivity test, which means that a sample from that baby injected into a rabbit actually had spirochetes. Uh, that baby was infected. And more problematic even is that with when you do spinal fluid, 3% were positive IgM in the spinal fluid, and, and then you had 2% that positive rabbit infectivity, which means you took a, a sample of that spinal fluid, put it in a rabbit, and was positive. So you have to treat this. You can't take a chance. Maybe you're overtreating. It doesn't matter. This is not the case. You want to worry about overtreating. Now, why treat or evaluate asymptomatic infants born to mothers treated less than or equal to four weeks before delivery? Remember, the guideline says if you treat less than four weeks before delivery, you have to assume the mom is, you know, the baby's not properly covered and the mom is still infectious. And why is that? Well, this study again from Pablo shows that uh, of 23 infants uh, where the mom received treatment in the last four weeks, proper treatment in the last four weeks, which means penicillin, 30% uh, had a positive IgM and 5% had a positive rabbit infectivity test. And uh, again, in the spinal fluid, uh, at least one of them had a positive IgM. So you cannot uh, basically say the mom was treated uh, and, and it's okay. If, if that mom gets treatment right before delivery, a week, two, three, four weeks, please treat that infant. So you must treat if the following parameters are true. If the infant physical exam is normal and the maternal treatment, either none or inadequate or unknown. If they got azithromycin, erythromycin, or a non-penicillin drug, which can happen, uh, or treatment was less than four weeks before delivery, you have to treat. 
Now, the mothers can be reinfected. Here's the other problem. They can get syphilis in the first trimester. The partner's not treated. They get reinfected. The RPR goes up. Even if previously treated, you have to treat the infant. And if the infant's RPR is less, is, in my opinion, the infant's RPR is less relevant to the site treatment. That's always a question we get. Um, you know, the RPR is one to one, maybe not. And so should we treat it? The mom was one to four. Honestly, the reality, what you need to focus is on the top part of this, uh, of this algorithm. And I always over-treat as opposed to under-treat. Now, again, for the asymptomatic infant, uh, the evaluation is what we talked about before, CBC, platelets, LP, bone x-rays, and the treatment options, I still think penicillin G is the way to go. Uh, there's always the question, depending on the infant, whether we use benzathine penicillin, which is a single shot of 50,000 units per kilo. Um, and some people uh, elect to do this in, in certain settings because there's no way of bringing the infant into the hospital for a variety of reasons. Um, I can think of, you know, in the COVID era, this could probably could have happened in, in hospitals throughout the world. Uh, but to do that, you would have to have a normal CBC, uh, normal platelet count, and a totally normal LP, bone x-rays, and that the follow-up is certain. And even then, I worry. Other issues to continue, the, uh, is so a full evaluation must be performed and, and be completely normal if benzathine is going to be used. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's a really important, important. Uh, now, what about, um, again, if the physical exam is normal and the, and the RPR, because this can happen, the RPR in the infant is completely non-reactive. Uh, if mom indicates she was treated, but the documentation is lost or not available, you know, that's less so now that we have electronic health records. But even then, not every health record talks to each other. So this is always a problem. So you could consider a limited evaluation, no CBC, X-rays, or LP, and in some cases, benzathine penicillin. But again, I always want to go on the, on the side of caution and over-treat and under-treat because the consequences could be quite dramatic. Now, why or why not uh, penicillin, benzathine penicillin? Uh, and, and one of the reasons is that there have been three benzathine treatment failures, three infants, uh, two mothers with untreated syphilis uh, in, in, uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, and one mother with secondary syphilis treated one month before delivery. None were fully, fully evaluated, no bone x-rays, one, one had no evaluation, and they developed signs of congenital syphilis at four, nine, and 14 weeks of age. Here's a failure of, of benzathine penicillin. And, and the other reason is that CSF penicillin concentrations are low after, ben, after benzathine penicillin. Now, some people say yes. Uh, well, because it allows for an earlier discharge uh, with improved maternal-infant interaction. It decreases the cost. You know, not, I don't care about that in congenital syphilis. I mean, that's really not where we should be saving money. Uh, some clinical experience with this. And, um, and the other thing is that the majority of kids, probably 152 asymptomatic infants randomized to uh, benzathine penicillin versus procaine. There were no treatment failures in that particular study with a low failure rate. But again, it's, you know, how, comfort to, how comfortable are you with that, the ability to say you, you actually treated this baby? Uh, and again, CNS invasion occurs frequently, so that's a worry. Uh, but it is uncommon with, uh, with normal infants born to mothers with untreated or inadequately treated syphilis. The third scenario, which is probably the most likely one that you will encounter, is the infant physical exam is normal and the VDRL or RPR less than four times maternal titer and the mom received therapy during pregnancy uh, more than four weeks before delivery, and there's no evidence of reinfection or relapse. In that case, you don't need evaluation. Uh, some people would give a single dose of benzathine penicillin. Uh, I, I would not treat, uh, uh, but you know, I think you, would, you need, still need close follow-up. So this is a scenario that you probably do encounter in practice, and, and in this case, we're not gonna ask a, a, an infant that is uh, born to a mom in this situation to be uh, subject uh, to 10 days of IV penicillin. Now, some special issues here. Penicillin allergy, uh, you, for, for the mom, if she has penicillin, you need to desensitize. The data is insufficient to recommend other agents, uh, but if non-penicillin agent is used, close serologic and CSF follow-up. And uh, this is for the mom, and, and, and then the baby, depending on what the mom received, you have to be real careful. Now, HIV infection, infants born to mothers co-infected with HIV do not require a different evaluation. This is important, uh, normal things that we just talked about. And the penicillin shortages are a problem. And uh, again, we need to continue to advocate so that the pharmaceutical companies make penicillin. It's pretty cheap, and that's probably why they don't make it, because they don't make any money on this. Uh, but we need to have this therapy. It's an absolutely fabulous therapy, penicillin G. How do you follow up these infants? Uh, well, serologic testing every two to three months until non-reactive. It's really important to make sure that they are actually negative. Um, and, and now in some infants, you may see a persistent, stable, tighter one-to-one, one-to-two 
Um, and there's always a question about retreating. I think this is where close follow-up, really understanding what happened to the infant from the beginning is really, really important. And, and certainly in infectious disease, we would follow them for 12 months and beyond. Um, if the treponemal test is reacted beyond 18 months, that, that indicates, and that, again, the specific treponemal test, if it becomes positive after 18 months, then you have a confirmed, uh, confirmed evidence of congenital infection. Uh, and again, you need to follow that infant for you know, hearing, developmental delay, and other issues that are associated with congenital syphilis. If the initial CSS is, CSF is abnormal, the recommendation is to repeat it at six months. And if abnormal, you retreat. There's some controversy whether you, re, you really need to do this. Um, I still wouldn't recommend that, that you do a, a repeat CSF in six months. All right, we're coming to towards the end of the presentation, and then I'm going to, you know, we're going to pass it to Dr. Holly to talk about the efforts in, in uh, vaccine development. So, how do you prevent this? Uh, I, you know, 128 infants died in the U.S. in 2019. How do you avoid that? How do you prevent that? And, and just by comparison, 300 children have died because of COVID. 128 because of congenital syphilis in 2019. You know, look at the, you know, just the balance. So if we're going to pay attention to one, we got to pay, pay attention to the other one. So we, it's easy, relatively easy. You need to ensure adequate universal prenatal care. That's the key. Serologic screening at the first prenatal visit, repeat at 28 weeks. And in many areas, repeat at the time of delivery. That's the other piece that's really, really important. Do not discharge the infant without maternal serologic status documented at least once during pregnancy. I cannot emphasize that enough. And of course, you got to report all the cases to the health department for contact tracing. Our health department is wonderful. They really follow up on these cases very directly. We've had uh, uh, at least two in the past six months, and, and we've connected with Lynn and, and her team uh, at DPH to make sure we do the follow-up. Now, point-of-care testing for timely treatment is the way to go. Uh, this is not something we're doing in the U.S., unfortunately, and then, but for all kinds of regulatory reasons, which I don't have time to go into, and, and prevent, that prevents congenital syphilis. If you test a mom at, at, on a timely basis right away and treat, you can do this, and I can guarantee you this can be done. Now, this is from CDC. Uh, you need to close gaps to reduce syphilis in newborns, and you can see here in the map Lack of adequate treatment uh, in, in the West is the main reason uh, of why uh, this occurred in the South and the West, 41% uh, and 34%. So if moms are not coming to prenatal care, they can't be tested, they can't be treated. Uh, so you need to test and treat to prevent syphilis. Test, retest, and treat, and retest. That's really, really important. Now, can this be done in the developing world? Absolutely. And in fact, they do it better than we do here. This is a study that we published many, many years ago uh, with a, with a, a Chyla Lamoti, and, and this is from uh, Kevin Deekhouse and uh, Judy Lewis and Betty, uh, Betty Gravian from uh, uh, Haiti. Uh, and what we, what we did is we looked at 410 pregnant women that were tested in, in Jeremy, which is southwestern Haiti. 7.6% had reactive treponemal rapid test, and the estimated congenital syphilis rate was 767 per 100,000, pretty high. Now, here is the uh, location of Jeremy, which we had a chance to visit. Uh, this is the in-flight view of, of Jeremy, unfortunately a very poor area in, in Haiti. Uh, but the healthcare workers do tremendous work here. Here's a village in rural Haiti, uh, you can see here, and this is uh, on, a, on, a, on a weekend, uh, they gather for uh, healthcare promotion uh, activities by, by the local authorities. And, uh, and, and this was a, a Cuban doctor that, uh, and, and, and his nurse uh, that, you know, we're, we're looking at evaluating moms that came for prenatal tests in this very remote area of Haiti. Uh, and here's a mom getting tested. Uh, and, and of course, then I, I happened to be there and they called me and they said, this mom tested positive. They showed me her hand and you can see the lesions consistent with secondary syphilis. What they were able to do immediately is they took the penicillin and actually gave this mom who was pregnant uh, a shot of penicillin, which prevents congenital syphilis. This is how you do it. You do it in a point of care testing. You do it on the field. You don't wait. If you wait, it's too late for that baby. And that's where there's an algorithm for syphilis uh, using rapid syphilis testing. We, we're not doing that here in the U.S. I, I wish we could and we would because we would avoid, you know, those 128 deaths that we have seen. I'm going to pass it on to uh, Dr. Hawley, who, um, as I already mentioned to you, is somebody who is doing amazing work um, in the lab, um, and, uh, and she will share the work that uh, an entire team from the Sparketal Research Lab, uh, with obviously great leadership from uh, my colleague, Dr. Justin Radolf and others, and she'll tell you what we're doing about vaccine, which is really the answer to this question. Kelly? Thank you, Juan. 
I'm really excited to be here today and just give an overview of our work on uh, vaccine for syphilis. So as uh, Dr. Salazar mentioned, treponema pallidum is the causative agent for syphilis and understanding its molecular architecture is going to be key to development of a high quality syphilis vaccine. So I want to just draw your attention to the top image where uh, you can see freeze fracture electron microscopy and uh, there are these particles that are indicated with the arrows. Uh, these uh, have been the focus of our research um, within the group for over 30 years. And it, it was sort of a major breakthrough for the group because what once were known as particles within this freeze fracture electron microscopy, now we know form beta barrel proteins, which I'm showing here on the right. And these um, proteins, it took us uh, quite some time to be able to identify their structures because we were, it really took a breakthrough in the, the notion that uh, we needed to look at them based on identifying them uh, in structure as opposed to sequence identity in other um, organisms. And what's important about these is that they, in many cases, are uh, bi bipartite in domain with one portion within the periplasmic space, and then the beta barrel being inserted in that outer membrane. This allows for these large extracellular loops to be accessible to the host. And it's going to require protective antibodies against those large extracellular loops to be able to clear the organism. And then an added um, problem in this arena is the fact that these outer membrane proteins are quite rare. So our, our syphilis vaccine, uh, CRC, really is taking multiple approaches. One is focusing on a, a structure-based approach that's really honing in on these structures of the outer membrane proteins and utilizing them uh, from an unbiased uh, approach that looking at them as, as high quality antigens. So knowing the structure in, in a high degree of confidence gives us information in what portion of the protein we should be immunizing with and looking at that protective response. Additionally, we're taking a classical approach where we're using the clues from nature uh, from some individuals who have been infected and looking at their antibody responses against these outer membrane proteins and, and determining um, which of these are good vaccine candidates. So essentially using their, their antibody response as our roadmap. As we know from the COVID pandemic, there are uh, a lot of information that can be gained about sequence variability of these of, of surface exposed targets. And we are utilizing a genomics core to investigate sequence variability in circulating strains from endemic areas to be able to determine what type of uh, vaccine we're going to need. Are we going to need a multivalent vaccine that's specific to individual regions, or are we going to be able to identify candidates that we can focus on that will cover multiple areas? The last approach is um, utilizing a, a very um, well-established technology from the HIV field that's allowing us to use a scaffold protein to extract B cells from infected individuals, uh, PBMCs. And this we're going to, we'll, we're cloning out monoclonal antibodies and looking at the protective capacity of those antibodies. The central component to all of this is having a refined uh, models to investigate. And this really serves as the linchpin for all of the project. So here I'm displaying the spirochetes outer membrane protein repertoire, which we call the ampiome. And for all intents and purposes, this profile of proteins will will be closely uh, replicated across all of the infecting strains of T. pallidum. So there, as you just look across, you can see that there's a large group of proteins um, forming families. So this is very important. These proteins are going to serve in many functions, some in outer membrane biogenesis. So inserting these nascent proteins into the outer membrane, as well as inserting um, glycolipids, we believe, or an un other unknown molecule um, into the outer leaflet of the outer membrane. Additionally, other families such as the eight-stranded barrels, FADLs, um, and the T-pallidum repeat proteins, the TPRs, these are going to be in involved in import of, of nutrients for the organism, as well as you know, effluxing some of those noxious molecules, which are going to be accomplished by the outer membrane factors, which are part of an efflux pump. And so you can see that these proteins um, are comprised of families. So this is great because it gives us multiple targets to go after. Some are co-transcribed, meaning that they'll be present in the same environment at the same time. So again, very helpful um, from a vaccine standpoint. 
So what do we do with all of this information? We have a global clinical consortium enrolling patients across four continents, as well as a biorepository site um, on a, in the Czech Republic. And what this is allowing us to do is to generate a very detailed demographic and clinical database, as well as acquiring high quality specimens from various stages of disease. So we're able to then look at that sequence variability in those global regions in T. pallidum's outer membrane proteins, not only based on phylogenetics, but we can really hone in on those extracellular loops of these outer membrane proteins and determine if an outer membrane protein falls within the conserved category or falls within, sorry, my pointer's not cooperating, within a variable um, category. For all intents and purposes, the ideal candidate would fall within that conserved candidate uh, grouping so that we would be able to hit multiple sites with a single antigen. But if they fall within that variable category, we recognize the importance of pulling in multiple candidates for um, the, a multivalent vaccine. As I mentioned, we're taking uh, clues from nature. So we're, we're looking at the antigenic responses of individuals infected with T. pallidum and looking at their reactivity against all of these outer membrane proteins. Um, not only at the full-length protein, because as I mentioned, there are domains <clears throat> that reside within the periplasmic space. Those aren't going to end up being protective antibodies. In a sense, those are just wasted antibodies. So we need to focus our efforts on these large extracellular loops shown here um, in various colors. And in order to do this, we are displaying these T. pallidum loops on a scaffold protein that allows us to look at them on a one-by-one -one basis to determine which uh, loops may have the best potential as vaccine candidate. This is also a highly versatile tool, which we're using to extract those B cell, T, excuse me, T pallidum specific B cells out of those PBMCs to generate those monoclonal antibodies and evaluate their protective capacity. All of these items come together to provide, hopefully for us, a broadly protective vaccine candidate with global effect, uh, efficiency. And so just to give you a, a sense of what our global consortium looks like and how this variability and antigenicity are going to be mapped, we, this just highlights our, our global sites. So we have a, a site here in the U.S. at UNC Chapel Hill. We're enrolling individuals as well as uh, in Dr. Salazar's um, home, home state of Cali, Colombia. And then we're enrolling in Africa as well as Asia. And we've been able to successfully sequence nearly 100 strains from these clinical sites to date. Just beginning to dive into that data, we are seeing that there's an array of, of variability within some of these outer membrane proteins, but there are also some conserved targets. The exciting component of this is that it's going to give us insight into which of these uh, candidates we want to pursue from uh, a project standpoint. Ultimately, our goal is uh, what we can gain from this as well is looking at vaccine preparedness. So our group has a, a small research project that's focusing on investigating the readiness within these clinical sites um, to receive a vaccine when one is actually available. So I'd just like to, to highlight the leadership within our CRC. Uh, of course, there are many leaders, but there are also many individuals that make all of this possible. As you can imagine, enrollment of 125 individuals during a pandemic takes a large effort, and we're very appreciative to, to the clinical and research staff that's made this all a uh, possibility for us. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Kelly, and you just stay up here for the questions. And uh, again, this is uh, also highlighting uh, the, the clinical teams uh, from uh, uh, Columbia uh, here in the U.S. This is how it all started. Uh, CEDA Amos, a research institute in Cali, Columbia, led by uh, Dr. Nancy Sarabia, who's a, an American investigator and has been there since the 70s and really has persisted and is doing amazing work in, uh, in various infectious diseases, including leishmaniasis and tuberculosis, and now with, with syphilis. Uh, Eduardo Lopez, Lady Ramirez, Johnny Garcia, uh, Adriana Cruz, uh, and of course, uh, you know, I want to highlight Kelly and Justin and, and Carson there on the left. Uh, she's the one who keeps us uh, organized in the lab uh, under no uncertain terms. We couldn't do anything without her. Uh, and then, uh, of course, you know, great thanks to uh, to our mentor, uh, Dr. Justin Radolf, uh, Dr. Caimano, uh, and, and Julie, uh, who is uh, who's supposed to be an administrator in pediatrics, but she's actually become a researcher with us. So Julie, thank you 
for what you do. And uh, people at Hartford Hospital, CDC, Walter Reed, and many, many others, and of course, our funders, which allow this to happen. So um, again, great presentation, Kelly. Appreciate it. And I, may, I think we may have some questions so we can actually you know, turn the, the video on. Anna Marie? Yes. Good morning, everyone, and thank you, Dr. Salazar. Thank you, Dr. Holly, for that excellent, excellent presentation. We do have a couple of questions this morning. The first one is from Dr. Sal uh, Dr. Zalneritis, who would like to know um, how often you are seeing a Jarish-Herxheimer reaction to treatment. Yeah, uh, thank you, Ed, for that question. And just to, uh, you know, for I think all of you know it, but obviously when you give uh, penicillin uh, to either uh, an adult, a mom, or, or an infant, uh, the penicillin leads to the breakup of the spirochete. Uh, and if you have lots of spirochetes, you release a lot of the lipoproteins, which are, uh, they, they cause a, uh, an innate immune response. And so when that happens, uh, it is believed that that's the cause of, the, of this reaction, which leads to a you know, pretty systemic uh, reaction on the, on the mother or the infant. And in fact, that's one of the concerns that people have had over the years, that if you have a mom with secondary syphilis, and you give her penicillin, uh, and then you develop this severe um, uh, reaction to the, the release of the lipoproteins, that could that lead to a stillbirth? Uh, could that lead to pre premature delivery? Uh, and that can certainly happen. And so some people actually recommend using steroids when you give treatment with a, with a mom with secondary syphilis. We, we generally have not done that. So the, the answer is we, we rarely see it um, in uh, the patients that we have treated uh, in Latin America. Uh, so it does happen, but I think it's not as frequent as, as perhaps uh, it, it is thought. Um, it doesn't change our therapy. I think in infants, it's extremely rare that, that you would see the, you know, this type of reaction, I think, is more in adults. A question from Dr. Scherzer. Can you comment on postnatal surveillance of infants whose mothers may be subject to recurrent trypanomal infection, i.e. drug use, sex worker, I assume breastfeeding is contraindicated? And I'll if uh, breastfeeding is contraindicated. Okay. Yeah, great question. So, so again, let me, let me go back to the, the prenatal uh, recommendations. Is Again, the most important thing is to do serologic testing early in the pregnancy, in the middle of the pregnancy, and in fact, I recommend later in the pregnancy. I think in those cases, if you have, uh, if you have three serologies that are negative, uh, uh, even if the mom has risk factors, uh, I think in that case, I would not preclude breastfeeding. I think breastfeeding is an important part of our therapy. Um, breastfeeding alone, it's not going to transmit T. pallidum. I think the problem uh, of, of transmission of T. pallidum from a mother to an infant is if they have a chancre on, on the breast. And that's been well recognized. That, uh, and in fact, these were you know, many, many stories of, of nursemaids who, who actually were giving uh, milk to infants of somebody else. And they had a chancre and they actually passed on uh, a, a T. pallidum to the infant. So again, I think serologic testing, serologic follow-up, uh, clear postnatal follow-up, which is also going to be critical, is the way to go. And if you have proper follow-up, I think the infant can certainly breastfeed. Thank you. A question from Dr. Shriver. Um, what is the current thought as to why an individual does not develop pro protective immunity after syphilis and can be so easily reinfected? Okay. So maybe, Kelly, if you want to tackle from a structural... <laughs> well, I think there, there's a two-part um, piece to that. So I think that we, we recognize the fact that individuals make a very robust antibody response. I think the fact is that the spirochete's very good at evading host. Um, that low paucity of outer membrane proteins helps to avoid host uh, recognition of those antibodies. Also, there's question about whether the, the correct antibodies are in sufficient concentrations at the right place in the right time. So it, it may be that um, you know, the, this organism has evolved to live within the host, so it, it's definitely figured out ways to hedge its bets towards itself in self-preservation. So whether the, the correct B cells are long-lasting may have a, a direct uh, response in them. Yeah, I, I think, uh, John, I agree with, with Kelly. I think, the, you know, this is a formidable beast, if I call it, because you, you can get reinfected and you can get reinfected multiple times. Uh, now, part of our work here is really to define a key question. Are people reinfected with the same organism uh, or are people reinfected with slightly different organism? And I think that part of the work that Kelly's doing uh, and, and Justin and uh, Tony Moody and also uh, Jonathan Parr at UNC is to look at the antigenic 
variability of those out-of-memory proteins. And uh, by the end of this, we will have information on whether people that are reinfected are reinfected with the same organism or a different one. Uh, my theory is that it's it's T-palatin with slightly different outer coat, if you may. That um, and, and because it changes, then it, it, it's able to evade immune recognition because of the positive of the out-of-memory proteins. Uh, that's probably the best bet I can give you in terms of an answer, and, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to prove that. Thank you. Dr. Cohen Abo comments, it was an amazing talk, and he asks, while we wait for an effective vaccine, is someone working on the membrane proteins to make an accurate diagnosis test during pregnancy and for the newborn? Yeah, so the, testing the newborn, Kelly. <laughs> uh, yeah, so <laughs> this is, um, right now the NIH has put out an RFP to support biorepository specimens to be able to start investigating some of those questions. So having a biobank will allow investigators to have access to high quality samples that then they can develop new assays. We do think that the outer membrane proteins are going to be some really important targets that they should should be investigating. Um, so we're, we're hopeful to see some positive strides forward in that. Albert, I think what, what we need, uh, and thank you for joining us, um, what, what we need is, you know, effective uh, serologic tests. And, and, you know, the IgM actually is very useful and, and very good. Uh, the problem is that the, the commercial availability of the really good ones is not there. Um, and so I think if we have a much more sensitive IgM, we can probably diagnose the infant with greater accuracy. Uh, but uh, diagnostic testing for syphilis is a problem, and this is what, you know, the biorepository that the NIH is sponsoring, hopefully will get funded through that. Uh, the, the grant is going in, I think, tomorrow or the day Thursday. after. Thursday. And, and Kelly is, a, is an, a, a principal investigator in that grant, um, and they're trying to finish it. And so I'm glad she's here today because she's still typing the final grant. But, but that will lead to improved diagnostics for congenital syphilis and, and gestational syphilis specifically. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, this is from Dr. Wolkoff. The patients with long bone abnormalities, particularly those involving the metaphasis, are there long-term impl implications regarding ambulation, even if those babies are indeed treated? Uh, Yalesa, thank you for joining us, and that's a great question. And, and the answer is if you treat it early and appropriately, there, there shouldn't be any problems with those infants. Uh, I think the, you know, the typical, uh, you know, uh, very abnormal uh, bony abnormalities that you see in photographs of, of people, of kids with late congenital syphilis are specific to those kids that did not get treated appropriately. So the good news, although it's it's fairly invasive and it can be destructive, if you catch it early uh, in, the, in the postnatal period, exactly where you see the babies, then uh, I, I haven't seen at least the ones that we have diagnosed, we haven't seen any anomalies in those kids. You still need to follow them properly. Before I forget, Dr. Holly, good luck with that grant submission. Um, uh, Dr. Zalneritis also asks, what evaluation of other sexually transmitted diseases are being done? Yeah, so the, the CRC, which we're working on, uh, is, is, which is funded by the NIH, and I think there's six centers that are part of this, maybe or seven, I don't know, I forget. Um, they're looking at uh, the chlamydia vaccine development, which is a huge problem, especially in the adolescent population. Uh, and also GC, gonorrhea. And those are two very specific um, STDs that don't have a vaccine and have been proven very difficult to, to, uh, for the development of a vaccine. So we have, so the, the trio is really syphilis, GC, and chlamydia. Uh, but you're right, Ed, every, uh, every patient comes in not with a single bug, but they usually have a triple threat, which means they, you have to test for chlamydia, you have to test for GC, and you have to uh, test for T-palatum. All three need to be treated because all can affect the infant in very different ways. Uh, all of them deleterious to the infant. So we have to focus on all three. Thank you. And our last question from Dr. Geertzma, is the continuing effectiveness of PCN related to the paucity of available outer membrane antigen markers? I'm sorry, I missed the beginning yeah, part the of it. The reason why there's no penicillin um, uh, resistance. And, and so the, uh, that's a great question. I, I think it, uh, the, the, the theory here is that, you know, because the, the metabolism of the organism is, is so specific in particular that it, it, you know, probably doesn't change as quickly as some of the other bugs that actually change their penicillin binding proteins. And, and, and so that's, you know, that's one of the potential reasons. Uh, I, I think it's, uh, it's unclear. Uh, and and we, you know, we just hope that it stays that way because if we, if we don't have penicillin, we have a real problem. This is, you know, think about it. You know, we have half a million women that, that are uh, diagnosed with gestational syphilis. If, if penicillin was not useful, 
for them, it would be a real problem. I think the number of babies that would die from syphilis would be even greater. And, you know, I think I'll just ask one question myself. So you had mentioned, um, you know, some of the things we can do in this country to improve um, uh, prevention and, and treatment and so forth. Um, would you recommend advocacy, real advocacy, when it comes to advocating for point-of-care testing and those types of improvements that we can make in this country that are being done in other countries? And there was some comment on the disgrace of any cases being, um, you know, um, picked up in this country. Yeah, and Marie, that, that's a great comment and question. And uh, I think... This goes back to our social determinants of health, frankly. Uh, you saw the map uh, you know, in the South, uh, Texas, major problems. Uh, in lack of access to normal and adequate prenatal care and testing is the major reason this occurs in our country. And, and that should not happen. I mean, that's something that we as a, as a society cannot let happen. And so we have, uh, as, as pediatricians, uh, we have a, an obligation to, to make sure that, first, that we instruct, this is part of the Grand Rounds reason, is because this is part of the pandemic right now. I mean, no one's talking about congenital syphilis in the news, but I share with you that in 2019, we had almost 100, we had 130 babies who died from this. Um, everyone's focused on COVID, which is appropriate, but I think we need to, we need to pull back and make sure that our health departments are working with us. We, we need to make sure that the point of care testing becomes available, that we eliminate barriers that do not allow the point of care testing to be done appropriately. Uh, if we can do it in Jeremy, Haiti, a rural community, and treat a mom and prevent that, uh, there should be no reason that we can't do that here. Uh, again, it's time of testing. The mom is seen in your office. You should be able to do a point of care test. And if it's positive, penicillin should be given immediately. You should not wait. That's always a problem. Thank you so much to both of you for an excellent presentation. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us this morning, for staying with us throughout the year. Happy July 4th, and we will see you in September. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.